Uh, This morning, we are looking at Mark. We're continuing in our series on Mark, and uh, we're in Mark chapter 3. So take your Bibles and open up to Mark chapter 3. We've been here since the beginning of January, and uh, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark. And as we know, the Gospels record uh, the life of Christ, of Jesus. And, uh, and thus we call it the Gospel, the good news. Do you know the Gospel? I'm sure you do. I'm going to give a brief two-minute presentation of the Gospel. What is the Gospel? Well, the Gospel begins with bad news. The bad news is, comes before the good news, is that we are not good. Scripture says that our righteousness is like filthy rags. This means that compared to the holiness of God, we are not good. We are awful. We were created to bear his image and reflect him, but every time we break one of God's laws, we are saying, I don't care what God says. I'm going to behave as if I am God and live by my own set of rules. I know best. This incurs a debt to the righteousness of God who created us. He is perfect, he is holy, and we are not. We are to live according to his standards, not according to our own. How can we pay this debt of sin and be reconciled to the Almighty? How can we ever deflect the wrath of God? The answer is, we can't. No good deeds, no sacrifice we make, no penance we pay, no merit we earn can ever satisfy the wrath of God, can ever repay the debt we owe towards our sin and make us right with God. But here's the good news. Here is the gospel. Once we understand that, the good news is God sent his son the second person of the Holy Trinity, to be conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of a virgin, he lived the perfect life that we should have lived, and he died the death we deserved. And if you're a believer, Jesus died vicariously, that's in your place, as a substitute for you. Your sin was imputed to him and charged to his account. He was blamed for what you did, for your sin. He went to the cross willingly and died for your sin. He also earned righteousness through his perfect life, which he makes available to you through faith for free. So Christ was blamed for what we have done, and we can be blessed by what he has done. He took our punishment so we can take his reward. Jesus rose from the dead three days later, defeating sin and death to save sinners like you and me. If you believe this, repent of your sin and be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that is the good news. This is eternal life. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ in two minutes. How's that? You know it? Do you share it? This is what we do. This is what we live. So Mark tells us, that this was the purpose to which Jesus came, to preach and proclaim the gospel, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This was Jesus' message. 
So last week, we finished a series of narratives. There were five narrative, narratives illustrating the authority of Christ. He had authority to teach and preach, authority to heal the sick and lame, authority over unclean spirits, and he had authority over the Sabbath. Jesus has authority to forgive sin. And this authority was never before seen by people, and they were amazed. Uh, All this was in direct conflict with the authority of the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, where where last week we read in verse 6 of chapter 3 that the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with Herodians against him how to destroy him. So let's pick up where we left off. Uh, last week, and I want to read here from Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. If you would please stand and follow along as I read. Um, chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. My, book, my Bible has two nice little sections there, um, ministering to the multitude and then the 12 disciples, 12 apostles rather. So Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea. And a large crowd followed from Galilee, and a large crowd followed from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. The large crowd came to him because they heard about everything he was doing. Then he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him so that the crowd wouldn't crush him. Since he had healed many, all who had diseases were pressing towards him to touch him, Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he would strongly warn them not to make him known. Jesus went up to the mountain and summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, to be with him, to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. He appointed the twelve, To Simon he gave the name Peter, and to James the son of Zebedee and his brother John he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning, challenge us, encourage us, rebuke us if necessary. Um, Thank you. Feed us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So this morning, um, the calling of the 12, good title there. I'm checking on the slides. Um, This is our intro here. Uh, This morning, we'll look at two narratives Uh, Two different groups of people who followed Jesus, the crowd and the called. The question I want us to consider this morning is, um, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean for you and me to follow Christ? As we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, we've seen that people respond to Jesus in a number of different ways. Many followed him, the sick the hungry, the curious, the demon-possessed, the disciples, even the scribes and Pharisees followed Jesus. Some are amazed at his authority and his ability to heal, yet others are offended 
by his actions and claims, by his refusal to conform to their rules and traditions, and also by his claim to forgive sin. So some followed Jesus because they were part of the crowd. They listened to Jesus preaching the gospel, but were primarily interested in the great works he had done. And others followed Jesus because they were called. We see this in chapter 1. Jesus called four fishermen to be his disciples. They followed him. Later in chapter 2, he calls Levi, the tax collector, to follow him, and he follows. And as we look closely at this passage, I ask you to consider, why do you follow Jesus? What is it about Jesus? What do you see in him? In this this passage today, we are presented with two scenes. We have the lakeside and we have the mountaintop. We have uh, two different groups of people who follow Jesus. We have the crowd and we have the called. So there are lessons to be learned from both groups of people, both groups of followers, the crowd and the called. So first, let's take a look at the crowd. So here we go. Good. Verse 7 to 12, this section here, we've got the crowd. Um, Mark describes the popularity of Jesus. Um, People came from all over Palestine, and they're flocking to Jesus. Pharisees are opposed to him, as we saw in verse 6. They want to put him to death. But Jesus' fame among the people continues to grow, and Mark shows this uh, in verses 7 to 8 how extensive Jesus' popularity was. Look how he describes it. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a large crowd followed him from Galilee, and a large crowd followed from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. So once again, Jesus withdraws along the Sea of Galilee, this time with some of his disciples, Uh, The shores of Galilee are a place where Jesus often conducts his ministry. And this time, great great crowds follow him. And then three times in these two verses, Mark describes this crowd as a great crowd, you know, a large crowd. Um, And people come not only from Galilee, which is the region where Jesus normally is ministering, but they come from even further away. And he lists, Mark lists these places. People come from uh, Judea and Jerusalem, the southern part of Israel. And they're coming from Idumea, the homeland of uh, Herod the Great. And that's even further south in Judea. Um, They come as far away as, as Tyre and Sidon, which are coastal cities about 50 miles away. Um, Also this reference to beyond the Jordan, a region of Pyrea, east of the Jordan River there. So these people are coming from all over. It's not just a few people, but it's a lot. It's great numbers of people. Um, and so it's, it's before any networks or any kind of uh, mass or mass transportation or any kind of uh, advertising that could get out there. This is before highways, um, and, and people were, were flocking. They were coming. Uh, it's as if people would come down here to Leonardtown Baptist Church on a Sunday, perhaps, uh, on foot from as far away as Washington, D.C., or even uh, Annapolis. Uh, imagine that, traveling that far by foot uh, to hear someone speak, and that's what they did here to see Christ. So it's important to remember that traveling many miles by foot, especially when sick or lame 
or deformed or some of these people were demon-possessed, um, the great sacrifices were made by the crowd to follow Jesus. They left home. They left security. They left friends, uh, family. Sometimes they even lacked food or care to follow Jesus. They left much behind, but they came. They came sick. They came broken, blind, lame, demon-possessed, and they followed Jesus. They flocked to the shores of Galilee. At the end of verse 8, we learn why they came. Uh, The crowds came uh, to follow Jesus, um, and it says here that they heard, because they heard about everything he was doing in verse 8. So this is why they came. They, They followed because they heard of these great healings that he was doing. He was healing sickness and disease. And they heard about the leper who Jesus had cleansed. They heard about the paralytic whose legs were healed or restored. They heard about the multitudes in Capernaum who were healed of their sickness and their disease, and they're hearing about Jesus' miracles as they come. They come because they wanted to be healed. And there are many in this crowd who are sick, and as Mark describes this event, uh, we see see that it was a bit chaotic. Uh, These people are desperate to be healed. So in verse 9 and 10, um, it says this. It says, Then he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, so that the crowd couldn't crush him. Since he, since he had healed many, all who had diseases were pressing in to touch him. So we've got this um, going on here. We've got this um, um, action. It's, it's chaotic. It's a large crowd. They're trying to touch Jesus. They were pressing in on him. So um, this, is, this is the crowd uh, that follows Jesus. So how does Jesus respond to this crowd? Does he send them away? No. Um, this mob-like process, uh, crowd pressing in on him, uh, in verse 10 it says, uh, since he has healed many, he had healed many, the sick and the diseased are pressing in on him, even endangering his life, and yet he heals them. He pauses, he stops, and he heals them. He sees their need. And as we've seen earlier in the Gospel of Mark, the primary purpose of Jesus was not to relieve temporal suffering and hardship, yet everywhere he goes, he heals people. And the healing miracles are signs that the kingdom of God has come. Yet these healings, these miracles, are also revealed uh, Jesus' mercy and his care for suffering people. This is the kind of savior he is. Even in the crowd, as a crowd presses in on him, even as they come in desperation, endangering his life, he heals And it shows his mercy and his compassion. So Mark makes this connection between the healing virtue of Christ and the touch of Christ. And we saw this in chapter 1 when the leper knelt before Jesus. And he stretched out his hand and the Bible says he touched him. And again we see in Mark 5 the Gentile woman. She says, if I may but touch his clothes I shall be whole. Um, so it's a touch of Jesus that heals. It's the power of Christ alone that heals, solus Christus. And Mark is reinforcing this. He's establishing Jesus as the almighty deliverer from sin and from its consequences, from its sickness, from the devil himself. And that, after all, is the purpose for why he came into the world. So why is he named Jesus, Jehovah? Jehovah saves because he shall save his people from their sins. 
So 1 Timothy 1.15 says, this is a trustworthy saying. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So Jesus healed the sick as an object lesson, visual theology, if you may, uh, that the Son of God has authority over sickness and demon possession, as well as authority over its invisible root in the souls of men and women. That would be sin. So that's the point that we've learned from this last chapter. Um, and remember the paralytic, the paralyzed man that they let down through the roof of that building of the house, and he said, first of all, to that paralyzed man, he said, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees, they murmured, and they said, and so he said, but what, what's easier for me, to heal the body or to heal the soul? Well, that you might know, I have the power to do both. Take up your bed, he says, and walk. And through the, the miraculous healings, Jesus is saying, I not only deal with the effects of sin, but I can eradicate sin itself. I am the almighty healer of the body and the soul. That is, after all, the gospel. The gospel is that you and I are both sinners and our souls are as ugly and deformed as the bodies that are on the shores of Galilee 2,000 years ago. And as Jesus, by his almighty power, healed the plagues and cast out the demons, so today he is able to cleanse you of your sin, to break the power of sin that binds us, and to deliver us from the power of the devil who's taking us captive. So behind the physical healings, behind the crowds, behind the climbing up on each other, we see this truth that Jesus Christ is the almighty deliverer from sin, from its consequences. So he's not only compassionate, he's not only, he also has common sense. And so you see that the disciples uh, have a boat prepared for him as an emergency exit in case um, the crowd presses him out into the sea. So um, they're healing people, uh, Christ is preaching the gospel, and they've got a boat ready there also. Um, the next little phrase that we have here is this about this comment about the unclean spirits who saw him. They fell down before him. So here it is in verse 11. Um, Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, you are the son of God. And he would strongly warn them not to make it known. So whenever these demonically oppressed people encounter Christ, what happens? They fall down at his feet. They don't challenge him. They don't assume a po- they assume a posture of submission, and the demons know who Jesus is. They identify him as the Son of God. They cry out in terror. Perhaps I think it's in terror at his presence. They know who he is and that he what he's come to do to destroy the works of Satan. They know he's a Son of God, so they cower before him. And this isn't the first time we see this. Um, see demons here in the book of Mark. Uh, one thing that stands out, though, is um, every time we encounter a scene like this, the demon-possessed people, it's, it's remarkable how accurate the knowledge of the demons are of Jesus and his identity. They know who he is. They know that he is the son of God. Um, and so um, it's interesting that they... Um, you know, their knowledge is, is, is often is more than what the disciples 
know about Christ. Um, at the end of chapter 4, Jesus calms this storm. He rebukes the storm. And uh, the disciples are asking each other in the boat. They're saying, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They don't get it, at least not yet. But the demons do. And they're vocal about who Christ is. They cry out, you are the son of God. But then in verse 12, you see that Jesus forbids them from revealing who he is. He orders them to not make him known and not publicize his identity. So I wonder why he does that. Sometimes I, I wonder, why is it that Christ is keeping everything on the, on the DL, on the down low, about his identity? You know, one, one answer could be that, um, that Jesus doesn't need these people, the demons, to testify about him. He doesn't need demons to endorse him. Um, so he's got this large gathering of people, and um, he doesn't want demons to say and bear witness and testimony about him. That would be inappropriate uh, for his identity. And matter of fact, later on, uh, in the end of chapter 3, um, we see that the religious leaders actually charge Christ with um, working together with Satan. And so Christ is avoiding all of that. He doesn't need demons to declare who he is. Christ himself will reveal himself through his ministry as we go forward. So back to our question, what does it mean to follow Jesus here with the crowd the crowd comes from long distances, leaving behind family, friends, homes, comfort, and they sacrifice to find Christ in the countryside. They follow him because Jesus does great things. They follow Jesus to be healed of sickness, deformities, demon possession. They come broken, seeking to be healed. They also come as sinners, rebels against God, eternally lost, living with guilt under the weight of the wrath of God. They come in need of a savior. And just as this crowd, we all come to Jesus like this, don't we? We all follow Jesus because we are lost, we are broken, and we are in great need. We are needy people. And for some of us, it's, it's a very real physical need. Some of us are suffering from our health issues. Um, but for all of us, every single one of us, we need a savior and we need to follow Jesus. But how tragic is it for this crowd that they all come, such a great number of them, seeking to be healed, seeking physical relief and temporal blessings, only to miss out on the eternal, only to tune out Jesus' message of the gospel, the gospel of eternal life, forgiveness of sin, and reconciliation with God. So when we see that today, sometimes we have those, there are those who attend church and may want to be successful or they may want a better job. They might love and enjoy the support of our Christian community. Uh, they may need physical healing, but, do they, but they do not come to Jesus to be saved. Do they, they do not want to submit to the authority of Christ. They do not want to follow Jesus if it means leaving habits they love. They follow Jesus when convenient. They follow Jesus, but don't show interest in his message or his person or his mission. They heard about his miracles. They did hear his teaching. 
They heard him say, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Did they hear Christ say this? Are they listening? They don't show any interest in that. They just want temporal relief from Christ. They covet temporal and ignore eternal. All right. So the crowd. Okay. Um, The second group and section here, beginning in verse uh, 13, is the called. And this is where we see Christ calling the 12 the apostles. And so, very good. So Mark begins this narrative by noting uh, Jesus' popularity with the crowds, but this second group is here, the group of followers called the, is the called. Um, so we'll contrast both of these groups here, the large crowd and now with this group um, up on the mountain, and we see this, a very different group. And beginning in verse 13, Jesus went up to the mountain and summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed the twelve, whom he also named apostles, to be with him, to send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. So, verse 16, he appointed the twelve, and then he lists the names of these twelve disciples, and now called apostles. Now, at first glance, um, these six verses uh, might be very easy to skip over. We have Jesus on the mountaintop, followed by a list of 12 names. Uh, But in fact, this is one of the most significant moments in redemptive history. Jesus leaves the shore of the Sea of Galilee, goes up on the mountain, and he calls out a larger group of disciples, out of the larger group of disciples, who had been following him, he calls some of them to himself. And so verse 14 says, he summoned those he wanted. Jesus, Jesus' calling of these men was deliberate and it was specific and he chose particular men to be a part of this group. This is the called, the group of the called. Notice the number of followers um, he chose 12. He didn't chose, choose five or even our magic number seven you know, or, or 25, he chose 12. Um, any Jewish person hearing about the calling of the 12 would immediately recognize the parallel with Moses on Mount Sinai. Um, remember that account um, in the Old Testament? Moses ascends Mount Sinai on the mountaintop. He receives those 10 commandments from Yahweh. And, um, um, and, and then... Yahweh creates a people for himself from the 12 tribes um, of Israel. And in a similar way here, we have Jesus ascending this mountain um, and creating a new people of God, representing, uh, represented by the 12 apostles. He creates the new Israel, not a replacement for old covenant Israel, but a fulfillment of all that old covenant Israel represented. This new community of God's people is not centered on the temple or the Torah or the land. Uh, It's centered on Jesus Christ himself, the fulfillment of the promise. And it's built on the foundation of these 12 apostles that are named here. And then we read from Revelation 21 that the apostles' foundational role in this new Israel is illustrated um, in the very architecture of the heavenly city. In verse 12 of Revelation 21, it says, The city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. Twelve angels were at the gates, and the name 
of the 12 tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. In verse 14, the city wall had 12 foundations, and the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. So what happens here in Mark chapter 3 is not insignificant. Even at the end of the Bible, at the end of the age, when the 12 tribes of Israel are represented by the 12 gates, we see the 12 apostles there as the very foundation of that heavenly city. And this is a key moment in redemption and redemptive history. Through these men, the church is established and the gospel will go out into the entire world. So who were these 12? We see a list of names and we could go into the details of these guys. Um, Jesus gives them, he knows them well enough to give them nicknames like Sons of Thunder. Um, we've got Peter, he always leads the list and, um, and he shows that he's, he's often the leader of the 12. Um, we see others here that we really don't know much about. And we could go into a great study for each of these, each of these individuals. Matter of fact, I think we had an ABF on that a couple of years back. Uh, going through the 12 apostles, the disciples, and their character and their traits and how God worked, Christ worked in their lives um, with them. So, but we also see, it's kind of interesting, um, that at the end you have Judas, he's always listed at the end, Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. So even as we talk about the called, you know, Christ calls one of these guys who will betray him. And God uses that. It's not a mistake, but God uses him also, one of the inner 12, um, to accomplish his redemptive acts, um, his redemption. So he has Judas listed there also. So these were common guys. They weren't religious leaders or princes or kings. Uh, Most of them were from the Sea of Galilee area there, uh, backwater area. But Jesus chose these guys to be the foundation for his church going forward. So what does he call these guys for? Um, In verses 14 and 15, we see what they're called to do. Um, We see that um, they're called for two reasons. One is to be with him, and the second is to be sent out by him. Um, They're called to leave their professions to become Jesus' constant companions and to be with Christ. So for the next few years, throughout the rest of the Gospel of Mark, wherever Jesus is, we find these 12. They're there with him. They hear his public teaching. They receive private instruction from him, and they're eyewitnesses to all that he does. They're eyewitnesses to his death and to his burial and to his resurrection. And in that sense, these 12 are totally unique. There are no apostles today because no one today has been an eyewitness to Christ. And his ministry. There are no new apostolic reformations going on. Um, Jesus calls these 12 to be with him. Then he also calls them to send them out. Um, the word apostle, as we know, means to be sent out. Um, in verse 14, he names them. Um, so they're sent out as ambassadors to preach the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God to demonstrate that the kingdom has come by, da- by casting out demons. So they don't actually start going out yet until around chapter 6, 
but they spend time with Christ preparing for the work of that ministry. So what do we learn about about these who are called? Well, several things. Um, we, fought, we learned that, in, first of all, that, that Christ is the one who summons them. Christ calls them to be with him. He, he summons them. He takes the initiative. In these verses here, um, four verses, we see that Christ, his action, his name, Jesus, he or himself, these pronouns are repeated seven times. So he appoints them. He calls them. He summons whom he desires. He names them apostles. And so Jesus does the actions here. Following Jesus is not first and foremost a matter of our search for Jesus or our decision to follow him. It begins with God's sovereign choice and his gracious election of us to belong to Jesus Christ. Jesus tells his disciples in John 15, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. So the disciples become disciples because of his action. Jesus summons those whom he wants. He calls them to himself. And as believers, we must never forget that God takes the initiative in saving. We are not following Jesus because we were smarter than the crowd or we were able to somehow figure it out. No, it's humbling to think that we contribute nothing to our salvation except for our sin and our rebellion. God takes the initiative in our salvation. And we are his disciples only because of God's sovereign grace. Glory to God. So second, um, you know, Christ calls these guys to be with him. Um, So in verse, uh, you know, he calls these 12 in verse 14 to be with him, to know him, to fellowship with him. And this is the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be with him. So, so how is your relationship with Jesus? Do you commune with Jesus through prayer and the word? Is there a growing intimacy in your relationship with him? Does your desire for the word increase and lead to greater worship, greater trust of Jesus Christ? Or is it going through the motions, looking at the time and thinking about what to do later? Has following Jesus become a ritual or a duty, a checklist, a to-do list? rather than fellowshipping with him, loving him. If it has been, let's repent and seek Jesus. Spend time with him in prayer each day. Pray that God would help your unbelief. Pray that God would strengthen your faith. This is legit. This is a legit prayer. Pray that God would give you the love, the desire, the longing for Christ, the way we long for temporal things. Ask him to open your eyes to his greatness and to his glory. Ask him to give you a greater desire and a longing to know him and to love him. So discipleships are, are called to be with Christ. So let's prioritize our schedule. Let's book it. Let's spend time with him. Let's be deliberate about that. And then that call goes before, the call to be with Christ go, goes before the call to serve him. So the next thing that we see is that we are called, these guys are called to be sent out. They're sent out to go away from Christ to preach the gospel. Um, Every disciple is summoned to share in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
when you become a, a Christian, his agenda becomes your agenda. His goals become our goals. And his goal is to saturate St. Mary's County with the gospel of Christ. How is that going for you? Are you able to share the gospel with your neighbors, with your family? Are you sharing it in word? Are you sharing it in deed by what we do? So to wrap this up and conclude this morning. Um, so we see these two groups of people. We see the crowd. Um, and, and there's nothing wrong with being in the crowd. But I believe that crowd is illustrative of those who come who are needy, who are broken, who are sick. With physical needs, but they have this great spiritual need for restoration, for forgiveness, for salvation. And, um, and so... That's important to note. And then the second crowd, the group of, of people that followed Christ here are the called, and these are the ones that Jesus summoned to, your, to himself. So why do you follow Jesus? As believers, we follow Jesus because we've been summoned. We've been called to be with him. He has sent us out to be witnesses for the gospel, and he uses us, our weakness, and all our display uh, to display his glory and his power as we follow him. Is this what following Jesus means to you? His grace, his fellowship, his mission, his glory? Or is it more about being a fan? Jesus doesn't need fans. He needs worshipers, disciples, men and women who hear his gospel and repent of their sin and trust in him as Lord and Savior. So, finally, let's just, I want to conclude um, let's pray that Leonardtown Baptist Church would look like the called crowd and not, not, oh, the called, not the crowd. Pray that we as a church would faithfully follow Jesus Christ and faithfully advance his mission and pray that we would go out into Leonardtown, into Great Mills, Lexington Park, Hollywood, and saturate St. Mary's County with this gospel, that we would share Jesus and that the unity of Leonardtown Baptist Church would be a compelling witness to the power of the gospel of Christ. That our neighbors would see the love of Jesus in our relationships with each other, with our families, and towards the lost. That the reality of the gospel, lives changed by being called by Jesus, being with Jesus, is on display. Uh, to Jesus Christ be all glory. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this example of the crowd that is needy as well as the called who you have chosen to come to represent you and to be with you. Lord, help us in our relationship with you. Help us to, to love you more. Help us to seek you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be a great messenger and ambassadors of the gospel of Christ. Uh, here in St. Mary's County with our, with our colleagues, with our families. Um, thank you, Lord, for this work. We thank you for the example we have of Christ um, as, our, as our, um, the head of the Church of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.